This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a tower of power in a cowering world. And by the way, the number one show for fans of A-Track Tapes. <laughs> That's funny. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And this is my wonderful co-host. Yes, I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so tough, after a shower, she dries off with steel wool. That's a, <laughs> you are tough. No, that sounds terrible. <laughs> now listen, I have a new kit. Oh, okay. You want me to talk about it a little yeah, bit? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about it. Yes, I have a Nurse Amy's Deluxe Minor Wound Care Kit. Wow. Yes, and I did this in response to a video that I'm about to put up on minor wound care. And you are talking about wounds and different types and what to do. And then I actually demonstrate on a, I wouldn't say severe, but a mild to moderate uh, slice from a paper cutter, Ooh, which was yeah. oh so fun. It slid underneath my knuckle skin. Yeah, those are terrible, yeah. Yes, so I had like a flap, which honestly you wanted to put a couple sutures in and I wouldn't let you. Because <laughs> <laughs> our, our lidocaine is pretty old. <laughs> I didn't want to use it. <laughs> well, it's good, good practice though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we used butterfly bandages and anyway, it was a good little demonstration on, a, on an actual injury that I sustained now i will say that you know in these cases there uh-huh. are many times when if it's over a joint like yours was yes. over a joint and what joint. happened to it every time i moved my and of course it had to be my right pointer finger of course the one finger you use right you're right in there most too. often sure. <laughs> and so every time that you you made Touch a fist something. i guess oh, which usually she Open makes a fist a lot oh no you know around here held a pen <laughs> opened a door Anything you do, pulled the zipper up, anything, got dressed, undressed, whatever, your hand. You use that finger all the time. Eat food with your fork. Right. Constant, constant uh, had, had a tendency to, to not bleed, really, but, you know, maybe It, it bled spot, for about five spot. days. Yeah. Well, it's spotted, you know. Okay, yeah. No, all right. Well, bleed. I didn't hemorrhage my finger for no, five days. No. <laughs> but I am a bleeder. So, anyway, yeah, I mean, it's still, it's been two weeks today. Uh-huh. It looks I good. Look, uh, yeah. It's still healing. See, the thing is with these, since we couldn't do it in layers, it wasn't deep enough, it has to heal from the bottom up. Yep. You know? It just has to do that, and that takes a while. Well, we tried, but we tried to keep the skin together. Yes, and with the is, butterfly bandages, which that's is what I, I said I, I demonstrate. But anyway, the kit has pretty much everything that I showed in the video um, and then a bunch of extra stuff, and it is loaded with everything you need from for minor wounds, just loaded a hundred butterfly bandages, right. a four ounce container of of betadine. And most of the time, you're going to be dealing with minor wounds. You're not going to be dealing, yeah. hopefully, with you know life threatening wounds every exactly. single time, right? Slices and cuts. There's also a four ounce of uh, burn gel spray mm-hmm. and uh, twenty nonstick telfeta uh, pads. We wow, put, that's a lot. We put in a Coflex, which is also called Coban. It's the elastic wrap with a sticky side. That's, yeah, right. Sort of like, it imagine an itself. ace with one sticky side. Not sticky so it, it hurts your skin when you pull it off, but so when you wrap it around um, it stays in place. a finger or toes or your arm or legs, that it will stay in place on its own, so you don't need additional tape. 
which is just another item. Now there is tape in there. And I also put, um, what I really love is the Elasticon. And it's a one inch wide. So the Coflex is four inches. So you can use that for bigger wounds or like to cover your entire finger. Or you have a one inch um, Elasticon, which is a similar product, but right. a little has a little more padding mm -hmm. to it and is a little stretchier. So it's a little more elastic. It actually looks more like an ace too. It has that same beigey color. Yeah, it does look like but that's good for um, smaller areas. Again, it's nice to hold on gauze or whatever pad you're using to cover the wound without having to use tape, which irritates skin. Pulling it on, you know, putting it on and taking it off constantly because every time it gets wet, you got to change it. Right. So anyway, there's some really good things: tweezers, a magnifying glass, some really good stuff. All right. Well, that's, I'm happy about it. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad that As a you cool have new a new baby ca canvas case you, that I have. Yeah. You have a new new kit. So <laughs> we're. Always, I really like it. Well, we've focused thinking, try and think so out the, much on the box. special kits that you know really minor wounds have been kind of overlooked because I figured you know everyone could just figure that out. But I since I got the video, I was like. Let me just put together something that people don't even have to think about it. If they just get this kit, it covers any kind of laceration and cut and burn that you might have. Mm. Again, you know, all on the mild side. You know, if it's severe, you want to get uh, some different supplies. But the common everyday things that we all have happen to us, for me, pretty much every day. <laughs> A little cut or nick or something. And you'll find that at store.doomandbloom.net. Yes. By the way, we're talking about all this medical stuff, and you have not given our disclaimer yet. Oh, okay. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. It's a free country, for now. But I'd like to know what you're going to do if some disaster knocks all the hospitals out of commission and a family member is sick and injured. Who's going to step up and take command? Well, don't look at me. I'm just here for the beer. Surprise, it is you. Ha-ha. So you better get off your duff, learn some stuff, and get those medical supplies from amy at store.doomandbloom.net. Hey, before we get started, I just want to mention that the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the Book Excellence Award winner mm -hmm. in medicine for 2022, greatly expanded and revised, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon, 96 or 97%, four and five star ratings, over 1,500 reviews. If you haven't checked out our new book, check out the black and ver black and white versions on Amazon, right? Yes. And we have a color version at store.doomandbloom.net, and we also have a spiral-bound version Brand now. new. A lot of people have asked us for a spiral. Got it. You got it now. You got it a few days ago, and it's great because you can open it, and it lays flat. All right. And it was hand-cut and hand-spiraled <laughs> by well. a private printer in the U.S. with USA paper. So you're saying they took the, our 700-page book they printed, and they cut it? No. They printed new copies. Mm -hmm. Instead of putting the binding on the outside, they laminated the front and the back cover with 10-millimeter laminate, so it's really thick, cut holes in different sections, so the whole book has holes through it, and then wound the spiral binding through it. Wow. By hand, That's yes. That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, All right. but it's only in the color version. Now, you will find, folks, hopefully only for a short, more period of time, because we're in a fight with them, uh, somebody has stolen our book on Amazon and selling it as a spiral bound. We did not give permission, 
It is not from us. And I do believe that they are printing that book illegally. Right. And so we, don't we, buy the Spiral Bound on Amazon. It's only black and white, and it is not from us. Yes, get it from store.doomandbloom.net. Yeah. All right. Sounds, sounds black good. and white's fine on Amazon. Good to know. They're our printer for the black and white. Hey, you know, it's summer, and this is the time that people head out to the shore and take in the great outdoors. Millions are going to do just that, and the vast majority of beachgoers are going to experience nothing but a great time. On occasion, however, a person can run afoul of a sea creature during their time in the water. It's their home, after all, and some can get pretty aggressive when disturbed or when looking for a meal. When you think about encounters with dangerous sea creatures, you're probably thinking about what? Sharks, right? It's true that running afoul of a shark when you get into the water is a very rare occurrence. Recently, however, there have been more shark sightings and even attacks. Five shark attacks have been reported in just the last two weeks off Long Island in New York, and the total number of attacks in the U.S. is up 42% in 2022. It's not absolutely certain why, but some blame warmer waters due to climate change. Others, an increase in prey animals near well-populated coastal communities. So which sharks attack humans? Well, all oceans have sharks, although only about 20 or so species are known to attack humans. Types that have documented attacks in the record include things like great white sharks, tiger sharks, bull sharks, blue sharks, oceanic white-tip sharks, hammerheads, mako sharks, lemon sharks, and even gray nurse sharks. I, I should say that gray nurse sharks are usually not very aggressive. They bite as a result of being disturbed by swimmers or divers. They live on the bottom, so if you step on them, well, you might get bitten. Well, every sailor's nightmare is to be thrown overboard in shark-infested waters. Sharks are perfectly engineered to live and hunt in the sea, and humans are, well, when they're there, they're like, well, a fish out of water. Wow, that was a good analogy, huh? If you've ever seen a shark bite, and I've seen a few actually, you realize the importance of prevention. You certainly want to prevent them rather than treat them. Make sure your people avoid areas where sharks regularly patrol, such as rapid changes in depth from shallow to deep water, deep channels, and the spaces between sandbars. Sharks sometimes spend time in the area where rivers meet the sea, where silt makes it more difficult to see them. You also want to stay out of water if you have any bleeding. Sharks have a very keen sense of smell. They have nostrils, but not for breathing, actually, but for smelling, and are attracted to even small amounts. This includes blood, by the way, from menstruation. Although there's controversy regarding this, other substances that might possibly attract sharks are urine and feces. You should avoid wearing or carrying shiny objects, which oftentimes are mistaken by sharks as fish scales. Swimmers should avoid wearing high-contrast clothing. Sharks can distinguish light colors from dark, seem to be attracted to certain colors like yellow, orange, white, and silver. Clothing and equipment should always be in dull colors. Now, you want to remove anything that you speared while fishing. If you go spearfishing, you want to get that fish out of the water as soon as possible. A fish that's speared bleeds and struggles, both of which attract sharks. You want to avoid splashing the surface while you're swimming. You want to swim smoothly and as quietly as possible in the water. Thrashing around may make you appear like a fish that's in trouble or a seal in trouble and gain a shark's unwanted attention. You want to stay out of the water at night, dusk, or dawn. This is when sharks actively hunt. You want to swim in groups if at all possible. Sharks, by the way, can injure you without biting. Shark skin is as abrasive as sandpaper. They often bump potential prey to investigate before deciding to attack. Blood from a braided skin can make them more aggressive as a result. As such, you should always make sure to keep your clothing on when you're in the water if you happen to be knocked off your boat or your boat capsizes, and that includes your shoes. 
Now, it's not a good idea to let a shark out of your sight. Sharks like to ambush from below or behind, so make sure you make every effort to know its location at all times. If you're in the water with other swimmers, you might consider forming a circle facing outward to better defend yourselves. If a shark approaches, slap the water with cupped hands or shout underwater. Otherwise, try to kick or punch it, especially in sensitive areas like the snout, the eyes, or the gills. These strategies might deter a shark that's just curious. Now, some sharks adopt a posture that signals that they're going to attack, and that is a raised snout, lowered fins, and a humpback posture is a sign of aggressiveness. I don't want you to play dead in the water. This does not discourage sharks. They're not bears. Likewise, swimming as fast as you can will only make you appear like a thrashing fish. I don't care how good a swimmer you are, you cannot outswim a shark. Make slow, smooth strokes. Keep the shark in view if possible. That's very important. In some cases, you may receive an investigatory bump from a shark, which may then just swim away. Other times, the animal will just bite. The animal doesn't have fingers, hands, or other appendages, so it learns about you by biting you. If the shark realizes that you're not prey material, it probably won't pursue the attack. In some cases, however, it will attack again and again. For this reason, some authorities distinguish between bite incidents and actual attacks. Now, even in deliberate attacks, sharks often bite once and then retreat to wait for the victim to die or weaken from shock and blood loss. Now, this is protective to the shark, actually, to avoid injury from a desperate victim. For humans, however, there's actually a silver lining here. It allows some time to possibly save a life. If a person's been bitten, it's important to try to get the victim out of the water immediately. Even a solitary bite can cause bleeding that's often life-threatening. With removal of soft tissue, we call those avulsions, or even amputation of a limb. Your priority is to stop the hemorrhage, and we've talked about this in many other segments on the show. Don't try to clean the wound first. You want to expose the wound if you need to, but time's running out. It's obvious where the bleeding is. Don't even wait to cut away the clothing. Lay the victim down, apply firm direct pressure using overlapped hands and your full body weight. If you have dressings, use them between your hands and the wound as a barrier. Employ the tourniquet in your medical kit or improvise one. This should be, by the way, the first course of action in any serious bleed. Place it high and tight on the extremity. Now you want to cover the victim because they're going to be in shock. They'll lose body heat very, very quickly. If the bleeding is from an extremity, you want to elevate it above the level of the heart. Once the bleeding is under control, apply a compression bandage. In survival settings, you want to take the victim to a more controlled environment where the bulk of your supplies are. Of course, in normal times, you want to call emergency services immediately. Now, there's more than sharks out there that could actually cause problems. There are things like jellyfish. Sharks get a whole publicity, but jellyfish actually cause 150 million injuries a year throughout the world. Jellies are marine animals with a very fascinating life cycle that would remind you of some kind of alien life form, honestly. Many spend part of their life on the seabed, not actually moving around, just sitting there like a polyp, and then they become free-swimming in their reproductive phase. That's called the medusa phase in many species, and that's what we envision when we think of jellyfish. Jellyfish have tentacles that have millions of stinging cells called nematocysts that injure millions of swimmers every year by injecting them with a type of venom. Common species to watch out for include the Portuguese man-of-war, a distinctive blue and pink color, the box jellyfish, the sea nettle, all sorts of other jellyfish that do have nematocysts. The symptoms can present as very minor, too rarely they can be life-threatening. There's local throbbing, burning pain, irritation, there can be muscle spasms, itching, swelling. Some people develop reddish brown or purple tracks corresponding to where the tentacles actually contacted the skin. You can actually have general symptoms like nausea and vomiting, weakness, confusion, all sorts of things. 
Some notice the develop of blisters and other reactions up to one to two weeks after a sting as well. In the severe envenomation, shortness of breath, rapid pulse, and other heart and lung symptoms may manifest. So you got to really watch out for that. And that depends on the dose of venom that actually was injected into the body. It should be noted that the tentacles of dead jellyfish on the shore still impart venom if you step on them or you touch them. Remove any visible stingers with tweezers or even a credit card if you can, but avoid rubbing the area if you, if you possibly can. Once removed, skin irritations should be treated with things like oral antihistamines like diphenhydramine or calamine lotion in, in terms of topical treatments, as well as topical steroids like hydrocortisone, 1% cream, or ointment. These are things that you should have in your medical kit. Ibuprofen or acetaminophen may be required for pain. If the injury is near the eye, well, then you should treat it as a chemical injury and do thorough flushing. Burning sensations could be relieved by a rinse using seawater, not freshwater, seawater. Some believe that immersion in heated seawater is actually soothing. Uh, not scalding, by the way, just, just warm. Different sources advocate vinegar, witch hazel, urine, urine even, rubbing alcohol, baking soda paste, and other substances as a treatment. These may inactivate the nematocyst, but they vary in their effectiveness or may even worsen the condition depending on the individual victim and the species of jellyfish that's involved. The medic should determine the right treatment for jellies in their area before a disaster occurs. So that's something you should really look up. To prevent jellyfish stings, avoid swimming on the occasions where they swarm. That's called the bloom, and this is often seasonal. It may be wise to avoid the shore altogether during these times, as a matter of fact. If possible, if you have to enter the water, do so with some kind of protective clothing. Wear shoes if you're walking on the beach. One other creature that's responsible for a lot more injuries than sharks is the stingray. They also sting you. They're flat, roundish, seem to fly in the water, actually related to sharks, with fins that look like wings. They're most often seen in warmer climates. A stingray's tail contains one or more barbed spines, each containing venom, which can be very painful when injected into an unwary victim. This usually occurs by accidentally stepping on it, so expect most injuries to be in the feet, ankle, or lower legs. Wounds appear as punctures or small lacerations. The venom can be lethal, by the way, if it's injected in the chest or abdomen, as it was in the case of Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, who was uh, a famous uh, celebrity and, and had a great TV show. I, I love this show. He went diving and actually was stung in the chest, in the heart, by a stingray and died almost immediately. The list of symptoms that a victim can experience if they get stung includes some bleeding, pain, swelling, dizziness, anxiety, sweating, nausea and vomiting, cramps, and even skin discoloration. In the worst cases, you might see irregular heartbeats, shortness of breath, even muscle paralysis, and seizures. So treating a sting would involve, of course, stopping the bleeding, if there is any, with pressure, flushing the wound and removing barbs and debris. Tweezers might help. Soaking it in hot, not scalding water. The warmth can inactivate the venom. Scrubbing the wound with soap and fresh water might help. And the one thing that you want to avoid is avoiding wound closure because these things can be dirty, can be infected. Uh, antibiotics like doxycycline, 100 milligrams orally twice a day for seven days may be helpful to prevent infection. You can find that in veterinary equivalents without a prescription. Uh, it should be noted that treatment strategies for stingrays will work on injuries caused by other kinds of poison-spined fish like certain catfish, scorpionfish, and other toxic sea creatures. And now, a word from our sponsor. Ladies, are you tired of all those hunky, muscular men flexing their biceps at you while you're doing important stuff? What do you do to fend off all those guys who put on the Hawaiian Tropic and bronze themselves? Well, before you give up and slather on that fake summer tanning product yourself, best-selling author Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, wants you to get a copy of her new book, 
how a can of raid to the face solves all your problems. You'll be glad you did. Hey, in warm weather, many folks head to the beach or the lake for recreation. That's a pretty awesome way to spend the summer day, but as humans can't survive underwater for very long, significant risks exist for those people who aren't careful. Drowning is the most harrowing and heartbreaking water-related injury. It's the third leading cause of death from unintentional trauma behind motor vehicle accidents and falls. About 90% of drownings take place in freshwater venues like rivers, lakes, and swimming pools. There's close to 4,000 drownings every year in the United States. Now, non-fatal water submersion injuries, many involving brain damage, actually, if you can count them, it's actually many times greater. Who drowns? There are a number of factors that increase the risk of drowning. They include, of course, poor swimming ability. Face it, if you can't swim, your chances of drowning increase. Failure to recognize physical limitations, they can, that can exhaust even decent swimmers and cause them to die. Poor supervision, of course, drownings happen relatively quickly and without a lot of noise, believe it or not. Even when lifeguards are present, they may notice nothing, may not see that you're in distress. Unsupervised small children, especially, could die even in a bathtub. Of course, your age is an important factor, too. Drowning is the second leading, second leading cause of death in children that are 1 to 14 years of age, surpassed only by motor vehicle accidents. Those under 5 tend to drown in swimming pools. In natural water settings, drowning deaths occur most often in teenagers and young adults. Most drowning deaths occur in males. That's about 80%, and sure enough, us males get the short end of the stick physically, that's for sure, in all sorts of ways. That's one. Although home swimming pools are the most likely places that young children drown, most adult drowning events occur in natural boating or wilderness settings. Speaking of pools, pool fences that separate the pool from the yard would reduce a child's risk of drowning by 83%, so a lack of barriers is obviously a way that little kids end up drowning in the pool. If you don't have life jackets, if you're out on the open ocean or even on the lake, well, that's a big problem, too. 88% of boating deaths by drowning involve people that weren't wearing life vests. Of course, things that affect your judgment, that's a big problem, too. Alcohol is an issue. Fully half of deaths by drowning in adolescents and adults involve impaired judgment and coordination caused by drinking. Some people with medical problems can also be at higher risk of drowning. People with seizure disorders, for example. You could even drown in the bathtub if you have a seizure at that time. Indeed, drowning is the most common cause of death by injury for those people that have epilepsy or other seizure disorder. So what's the mechanism of drowning? How do you drown? Well, the primary urge to breathe is triggered by rising carbon dioxide levels in your blood. The human body is very good at detecting even small changes in CO2 and controls breathing to facilitate what we call gas exchange. That's oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. Drowning begins at the point where a person is unable to keep their head, nose, and mouth above water. The actual inhalation of water into the lungs happens later on. So once the point occurs that a person is unable to keep their mouth above water, there's a cascade of events that takes place that leads to a fatality. You might be surprised to know that the symptoms considered to be classic for drownings, like flailing around and screaming, often are not apparent in a lot of these events. Involuntary movement of arms and legs may occur underwater and not actually splash. Lack of air prevents screaming for help, at least loud enough to be heard. From a distance, it may actually not be obvious even to observers, even to trained observers like lifeguards, that the victim is in trouble. It's important, therefore, to look for the following behaviors that you're seeing in near-drowning individuals. Their mouth and nose is below the level of the water. Their eyes are unfocused, usually wide with fear. Their heads tilted back with their mouth open, obviously gasping for air, attempting to swim to shore without making any progress. And there are cases where you might see uncontrolled movement of extremities. People may flail around, and you may actually, if you're lucky, see them splashing around and give you a clue that something bad is happening. 
There are thought to be four stages to drowning. One, the victim holds their breath voluntarily underwater as long as they possibly can, and this lasts only until carbon dioxide in the body reaches too high a level. Two, water enters the airways as the urge to breathe becomes impossible to suppress. Although the trachea goes into spasm at this point to prevent aspirating more water, panic ensues, and that consumes more oxygen and speeds the loss of consciousness. Now, having said that, an unconscious victim rescued with a sealed airway due to spasm still actually stands a pretty good chance of recovery. Three, once you're unconscious, well, the open trachea, or windpipe, allows free movement of water into the lungs. And fluid in the lungs prevents oxygenation that leads to cardiac arrest and deterioration of brain cells. And eventually, four, injury to the brain becomes irreversible after several minutes without oxygen. Near drownings are usually found within two minutes, while fatal events are seen after 10 minutes or more. The younger the person, the better their chances are, actually. In one instance, a child submerged in water just above freezing for 66 minutes survived without apparent neurological damage. It's thought that hypothermia in these types of events actually slows the metabolism, which allows for a longer time before the development of severe brain damage. When a death occurs in water, it's usually evaluated by autopsy. Water in the lungs indicates a victim was still alive at the point of submersion. Now, absence of water in the lungs may occasionally be seen when airway spasm persists until cardiac arrest. That's called a dry drowning. More commonly is someone who died before the immersion event. In summer weather, beating the heat often means a dunk in the pool or lake. Here are some things you should know to keep your family and yourself safe from drowning. Take swimming lessons. Don't go into swimming depth water if you don't know how to swim. Swimming lessons are provided by a lot of municipalities throughout the country. Believe it or not, the best time to teach children to swim is between the ages of one and four. Amazing, isn't it, that they can learn so young. You should take CPR classes. Of course, understanding resuscitation is very important when it comes to aiding drowning victims. You need to, of course, strictly supervise youngsters in the water. Whenever children are involved, strict attention must be given by a sober and responsible adult. For preschool children, the adult honestly should be close enough to touch the child and not involved in any other activities. Of course, you want to utilize the buddy system. Everybody should always swim with another person or persons, and I'm including adults in this. On the beach, you should beware of rip currents. Know the meanings of flags on supervised beaches. High waves, discolored water, debris, and channels of water moving away from shore, those are signs of dangerous conditions. If you're caught in a rip current, what you need to do is not try to swim to shore, swim parallel to shore until you don't feel the tug of the rip current and then diagonally back towards the beach. Some people think give the kid a pool noodle and they're going to be fine. Well, foam or inflatable toys do not take the place of life jackets. Noodles and water wings are not acceptable as substitutes for life vests, especially on boating trips. Be firm about using the right equipment, even for adults. In the swimming pool, well, get a fence up. Four-sided fencing, four feet high with a high latch. That's the safest way to prevent small children from falling or jumping into the pool and getting in trouble. And don't leave their toys near the pool after swimming. If you're going out, always be aware of the weather. Thunder showers often whip up the water with strong winds, and that increases the risk of drowning. You want to be physically fit enough to go swimming if you are going to go swimming. Swimming involves exertion, so make sure you're up to the challenge. And don't drink alcohol. Any water activity becomes more dangerous both to you and the children that you supervise if you're drinking. If you're in the wilderness and crossing a river, make sure that you have good footing. Fast-moving water can easily knock you off your feet, even if it's just a foot deep. Oh, one other thing that I think is sort of a silly activity, but a lot of people have deep breathing contests or, or contests of how long that they can stay underwater compared to their buddy. 
Well, professional deep to hover divers often hyperventilate to decrease carbon dioxide and depress the urge to breathe. But you shouldn't. Taking rapid deep breaths before submerging may cause a blackout and lead to drowning. At the beach or in the wilderness, you might encounter a distressed person in the water. What do you do? Your first response is to jump in and help, but remember that the hazards that are causing the problem are probably still there. Also, the person in question is going to be panicked and flailing around, so you should call for others to help if possible. That should be your first thing. Your goal, of course, is to help the person in distress while avoiding injury and reducing the risk that you'll become the next victim. To accomplish this, you should remember four words. Reach, throw, row, go. Reach, throw, row, go. Reach out to the person with a stick or oar. Throw the person a lifeline, a life preserver, or other floating object. Row out to the person in a canoe or other boat if possible. And finally, go into the water only when there is no other option. If you have to go into the water, recovery must be done in such a way that it doesn't wind up submerging the rescuer due to the victim's desperate attempts to stay above water. A buoyant object is helpful, but approaching from behind or offering one hand, that might work as well. Once the victim's in hand, any object weighing them down should be removed. Then towing the patient from behind with the face well above water can be accomplished more simply. Once out of the water, put the person in supine position and check for breathing. If unconscious but breathing, place in the standard recovery position. CPR may be required if the victim isn't breathing. Unlike in a typical cardiac arrest, five initial rescue breaths are recommended in this case and then start the chest compressions. This is because the basic issue is lack of oxygen rather than cardiac. After the initial breath, cycles of 30 chest compressions and two rescue breaths are performed until help arrives. Some believe in attempting to expel water with Heimlich-like maneuvers. These should be avoided because there is no solid object obstructing the airway, and these actions could delay the start of the patient attempting to breathe. Also, abdominal thrusts raise a chance of vomiting stomach contents into open airways, increasing the risk of death. Victims who arrive at a medical facility with a regular heartbeat and spontaneous breathing usually recover with good outcomes. Those requiring resuscitation, well, they'll require intensive care and may end up with long-term handicaps due to damage from lack of oxygen. The Red Cross actually has something called the chain of drowning survival, things that you should do if you encounter a swimmer in distress. One, shout for help. Two, remove the person from the water in a safe manner. In normal times, call emergency services. If you're alone, begin resuscitation efforts for two minutes before calling emergency services. Using CPR, five rescue breaths, chest compressions, and rescue breathing. Chest compressions alone, by the way, are insufficient for drowning victims. And now we've reached a part of our show where we have our segment on questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spierko's survival podcast. In this case, since Amy has a new minor wound kit coming out, we're going to talk about soft tissue injuries and infections like cellulitis. If you have questions you'd like me to address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness, as well as an entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's letter for the expert counsel is from Ford, who writes, what medications or supplies should I stock in addition to regular medical prep for cellulitis? I've developed a history of cellulitis in my shins. Antibiotics have been used to treat it successfully, but I'm concerned about the chances of resistant bacteria. Can you recommend which antibiotics and supplies I should stockpile for you-know-what situations? Also, anything I can do to help prevent this recurring. 
It has come from both cuts and most recently chigger bites. I have used bug repellent with limited success and have become very diligent about keeping the area clean. Thank you, Ford. Ford, I've written a lot about cellulitis in the last decade and even have a section on it in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Cellulitis is an inflammation of soft tissue. It can occur in any circumstance where your body's natural armor, your skin, is breached and bacteria invade deeper layers. It's very common. Very few people that spend time outdoors will avoid getting it from time to time. This would be especially true in survival settings where you have to perform exertions that you're just not accustomed to doing just to stay alive. Despite everything you do to care for a wound, there's a chance that an infection will occur. You can identify cellulitis by a few signs other than just pain. Redness, often spreading as the infection worsens, usually going up your arm or up your leg, depending what part of the body is actually injured. Swelling, which leads to a very shiny aspect to the skin in the area that's swollen. Warmth, which is obviously different than, say, on the opposite unaffected side. It's definitely going to be warmer on the red side than it is on the side that does not have the injury. And in the worst cases, accumulations of pus called abscesses can occur. This leads to a foul odor and the drainage of a whitish-yellowish discharge. If this condition is untreated, the infection can, in certain cases, spread to your circulation and become life-threatening. Cellulitis can be caused by many bacteria, but is most commonly caused by streptococcus and staphylococcus, which enter through a break in your skin. A more resistant version of staph, called MRSA, M-R-S-A, can make this infection even more difficult to deal with. Cellulitis is often treated, as it was in your case, Ford, with antibiotics. The most common antibiotics used to treat the infection that are available to the general public without a prescription are amoxicillin, cephalexin, trimethoprince sulfamethoxazole, clindamycin, and doxycycline in their aquatic or avian versions. All this is in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Now, don't forget that amoxicillin and cephalexin may cause reaction to those people who are allergic to penicillin and may not be effective against MRSA in some cases. To help prevent cellulitis and other infections, take these precautions when you have a skin wound. Wash your wound daily with soap and water. Do this gently as part of your normal bathing. Apply a protective cream or ointment. For most surface wounds and over-the-counter ointment, such as bacitracin, triple antibiotic cream, even Vaseline helps to provide some protection. You also want to make sure you cover open wounds with a bandage and change that bandage at least daily. You want to follow the course of the infection by marking the boundaries of the redness with a marker. If it's spreading, make sure you're taking one of the antibiotics that I mentioned. In your specific case, Ford, you want to start wearing boots and high tops as well as long pants when you're outside and tuck your trousers into your boots. Although I can't vouch for their success with chiggers, certain insects really don't like DEET repellents for skin and permethrin 0.5%, not for skin, but to treat clothing. The bottom line is to protect your skin. Your skin is your armor and you want to avoid a break in it, whether it's from an insect bite or whether it's from some other injury. This is Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. 
Thanks for listening. Well, that's all the time that we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden, I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. See you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.